is Bloomberg Surveillance. What I think the markets are doing is adjusting to the fact that things are going to be lower longer. Interest rates are going to stay lower longer than people anticipate. Low inflation is very good for stocks. It has proven to be over the last 50 plus years. The biggest banks are still, in my judgment, too big to fail. And if you had multiple banks run into trouble at the same time, they would still get bailed out. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, worldwide. A most amazing morning for global markets with Sterling leading the way off the Brexit fears, but other news as well. We had a 138 handle on cable right now, 138.99 um, on pound Sterling. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. It's brought to you by Cohn Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. As economic policy changes, so do business decisions. Speak to the experts at Cone Resnick for the forward-thinking advice you need. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. Without further ado, uh, we need to bring in Martin Feldstein of Harvard University, of course, the founder of the force of NBER, our National Bureau of Economic uh, Research, and leading acolyte of ec 10 in teaching basic economics to young upstarts at Harvard. Professor, wonderful to speak to you. Good to uh, talk to you. We could talk to you this morning. I think, Mike, we could go three, if not four hours with a good professor. Let me ask the fiscal question of the morning. If we all assume our monetary institutions are exhausted and your reading of political history, is there any way a society or monetary authorities jawbone good politicians to affect fiscal policy? Well, right now, I don't think we need to do any new fiscal policy. Uh, So it's really a question about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, If this uh, recovery continues, if the Fed normalizes interest rates, then it will be just like any other uh, past downturn, uh, and monetary policy will be able to do the job. Well, you make an interesting point. You, you wrote this week in the Wall Street Journal that the Fed should continue to raise interest rates, that the U.S. economy is in better shape than people think, and uh, you seem to be a lonely voice out there calling for additional rate moves by the central bank. Well, of course, if uh, if you're the stock market or the investors in the stock market, uh, you want another pumping up of equity prices by the Fed. But I think that's a dangerous strategy. I think the Fed got it right last December when they said they would have uh, four increases this year. And I don't think things have changed significantly since then. Mike, pick it up here, but this is critical. How do you rebut then what Madame Lagarde says, which is Janet Yellen must worry about the contagion of global slowdown? It's certainly not having a big impact on the United States. If you look at what's happened to our net exports, the last two quarters for which we have data, the cumulative effect over the last two quarters was to reduce GDP by one quarter of 1%. So uh, this is not a problem for the U.S. It is certainly true that Japan is in trouble, that the Eurozone is in trouble. Uh, China has slowed down a bit. But who wouldn't like to be growing at six and a half percent? Are you afraid that the Fed is afraid of financial markets at this point? 
they're acting as if they are. The question is, is that what they're really afraid of, or is it that what they're looking for is a further reason to keep money uh, very loose, keep interest rates super low, so they can squeeze another few tenths off the unemployment rate? Well, they've, that's what they say they want, but uh, given the the uh, forecasts that the Fed made for what happens to the economy in 2016, it, there doesn't seem to be a reason to hold off in March, uh, given the data you're citing, but they're giving every impression that they're going to do that. Well, you're right, but I, as you said, if you look at their forecast, if you look at the administration's forecast, if you look at the CBO's forecast, if you look at private forecasts, they're all saying this is going to be a year in which we're going to have 2-plus percent real GDP growth. So uh, I think the fetish about whether we have an inflation rate measured the way the Fed likes to measure it with the PCE deflator, whether we have 1.3% or we have 2%, gosh, who cares about that other than the Fed? <laughs> Can you put on your EC-10 hat and explain why we are better off with higher interest rates at this point? Well, I think the way I would put it is we're in trouble with these super low rates. The super low rates uh, helped us get this recovery, so that was a good thing, but we are causing financial instability. We're causing risk-taking that could uh, come home uh, to create serious problems for us in the future. So we're seeing the stock market gradually unwinding. Do we want to give it another another boost so that when it starts to fall, it has to fall faster? I don't think so. We, we've we reached a point, and, and again, with the different attitudes that are out there, I think our heads are spinning and our listeners' heads are spinning about this polarity between what the Fed should do. I go back to global events in your doing history, Professor Feldstein, or your reading of history. Can there be a global central banker? Is that something in our history? No, we don't have a global monetary system. We have a system in the Eurozone. Uh, we have a uh, monetary policy for Japan, for China, and so on. So, no, there is no global monetary policy. But does the Fed have any, the Fed or the United States have any responsibility to the rest of the world, given our status as the world's reserve currency? Uh, well, the status as a global reserve currency, to the extent that that's important, it is to maintain the value of the currency. And that means not allowing inflation to get out of hand. And right now, inflation is low. Uh, it's, it's not worryingly low, but it's low, but it's beginning to mm -hmm. pick up. And we're seeing that in wages, and we're seeing that in prices. So the core CPI was up 2.2% relative to 12 months ago. It's picking up speed. Uh, average hourly earnings picking up speed. 
So to the right. extent that we have an obligation, it's to prevent future inflation. Professor Felstein, I want to switch gears here. I know Mike's got a bunch of themes he wants to address as well this morning. I think all of our listeners would like to know your experience of how you plug in future economic growth into our budget calculations. We've got a great deficit to GDP right now, but real concerns moving forward, CBO and others suggesting um, uh, to be kind to use the cliche storm clouds on the horizon. How can we know where the horizon is if we're plugging in GDP estimates that are all over the map depending on one's political persuasion? Well, of course, what matters is the medium and longer term, not what's going to happen for the next quarter or two quarters. So what's going to happen to the debt-to-GDP ratio, which is the thing I worry about, um, depends on what's going to happen to future nominal GDP growth and what's going to happen to the deficit. So uh, what we've seen is that the debt-to-GDP ratio has more than doubled in the last 10 years. used to be 35%. That's okay. We can live with that. But now it's over 75%, and the Congressional Budget Office tells us 10 years from now it's going to be 86%. If anything, I think that's too optimistic. So where it goes depends on just two numbers. What's happening to the deficit ratio, the share of GDP that our deficit is, and second, what's happening to nominal GDP. And I think the CBO's estimate, and they try to do the best job they can. I think they're straight shooters. But I think what they're telling us is that based on the assumption that we're going to be growing in nominal terms at about 4%, 2% real plus 2% inflation, and that deficits are going to come up only slowly, given that they're putting us on a path toward 100% of GDP, reaching 86% of GDP in the next 10 years. I think that's too optimistic. Martin Feldstein with us. This one, Mike, you've got like eight things to talk about. Yes, I do. As soon as we come back, I want to jump right in to follow up on what he was just saying about the debt-to-GDP ratio. But I do need to pass this along. Jeffrey Lacker, the Richmond Fed president, speaking in Baltimore, says there is no evidence that a U.S. recession is imminent. He thinks that the decline in inflation expectations may be more a decline in the term premium than anything else. What does that mean? That means that... you're not getting compensated as much for holding on to things for a longer time, right? Not necessarily because there's higher inflation. Yeah. My ter- John Tucker, my term premium is is under the mattress. <laughs> That's <laughs> my time premium. My time premium is, is in a matter of months. I, say. Is, I was going to say minutes or hours. We're going to continue yeah. with Professor Feldstein he of Harvard uh, University. A little bit better tape than an hour ago. Futures negative fifteen. Dow futures negative one thirty six. Sterling one thirty nine. All right, let's bring uh, John Tucker in now with uh, world and national headlines. John? Well, Donald Trump getting a major boost heading into Super Tuesday contest next week. His dominating victory in the Nevada caucuses pushes him further out ahead of his nearest competitors for the Republican presidential nomination. Uh, Still a lot left to resolve as the effective date of a Syrian truce edges closer. The agreement reigns shaky at best. The U.S.-Russia proposed truce is supposed to begin Friday. Major questions over enforcement are still unresolved. And Coca-Cola's latest bid to win European Union trademark protection for a new version of its iconic bottle has fallen flat. EU judges say its curvaceous design isn't distinctive enough. 
Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists. You heard what I said in more than 150 <laughs> news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker, curvaceous. Curvaceous. Ugh. Okay, you too. Okay. That's enough. Uh, futures negative 15, Dow futures negative 135. We will return with Martin Feldstein on the nation's debt and deficit. Bloomberg surveillance. This news update brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. Future is moving lower this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. U.S. futures are under pressure today. Dow futures currently lower by 143 points. SPs drop 16. And NASDAQ futures fall by 49. The U.S. 10-yield falls to 1.7%. And Europe is also trading lower, led by greater than 2% losses in France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. The British pound sinks to its lowest since 2009, while credit agricole lowered Brazilian 2016 GDP forecast to a minus 3.8%. On the U.S. economic front at 945, market U.S. services and composite PMI at 10 o'clock new home sales and at 1030 DOE energy numbers. Regarding earnings this morning, Lowe's EPS was in line, mobile IP and target EPS missed. Finally, some early Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. At Jefferies, PTC Therapeutics upgraded to hold. Radius Health cut to hold. At Goldman Sachs, Norwegian Cruise Line raised to neutral. Macy's cut to hold versus buy over at Stiefel. Ford cut to underperform at Credit Suisse. And finally, Drill Clip cut to neutral over at SunTrust. Live from the first breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? All right, thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K, Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. Sterling 139.10. That March uh, 2009 low for Sterling weakness 137.53 was a daily low. Bloomberg Surveillance. Brought to you by Invesco. Factor-based strategies can help investors focus on high-quality, low-volatility, and more. Learn more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. Michael, we have an esteemed guest on our debt and on our deficit. Martin Feldstein, the uh, Harvard University economics professor and uh, chairman emeritus uh, National Bureau for Economic Research. Before the break, Marty, you were uh, talking about the debt-to-GDP ratio becoming worrisome. And given the austerity that we have been through, and uh, given the fact that uh, spending is going to have to rise as entitlements uh, rise uh, with the baby boomers retiring, uh, I would presume that your argument would be uh, it's less about lowering the debt than raising the GDP to try to take care of the problem. Well, it would be nice to get faster GDP growth, and that's obviously an important goal in itself. But in terms of reducing the debt-to-GDP ratio going forward, it has to be done by uh, either cutting spending, raising revenue, or some combination of the two. You cannot continue to run primary deficits and expect to see the Mm -hmm. debt-to-GDP ratio come down. Where would you cut? Um, 
if you know, what's left? Well, that's a very good way to put it because if you look at the outlook for uh, defense and you look at the outlook for non-defense, so-called discretionary, meaning annually appropriated programs, both of those are now forecast to head down to 2.5% of GDP. Those are the lowest numbers we've seen for spending in those programs since World War II. So what that means is that the only way to slow the growth of government spending is to slow the growth of of, uh, so-called entitlements, meaning Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And now, folks, we go where we fear to tread. Uh, Professor Feldstein, you are known to be of the elephant persuasion within your service to America and your service, uh, particularly with President Reagan. Have any of the I mean, I assume you're not campaigning for the senator from Vermont, Super Tuesday in Massachusetts. You got but, it right. OK, I got it right. Good. I got one thing right today. Have any of the candidates called upon you for fiscal wisdom? Uh, yes, I I spent some time talking with Jeb Bush, and you can see that how much out. that did him and the country. <laughs> Is there any, I mean, if you want to name names, fine. If not, uh, just give us policies. But is there anybody out there who has suggested anything by way of an economic policy over the next four years that would do anything for the country? Several of the Republicans have said quietly that um, whatever else they do, we're going to have to, going forward, slow the growth of Social Security benefits. So uh, Bush said that. Uh, Christie said that. Uh, others have said that. So I, and, and I, think, um, I think that has to happen. What about uh, uh, in, in the short run to raise the GDP, uh, to get back to what I was talking about, uh, is there any policy that you would advocate or that anybody is talking about at this point? Well, I think some of the um, tax reforms that have been discussed would help. I think if we changed the corporate tax uh, rules, we got rid of this uh, strange system that only the United States practices in which funds coming back from from U.S. subsidiaries abroad get hit with a second round of taxation in the U.S., uh, I think that... uh, prevents companies or discourages companies from bringing those funds back, and that hurts the growth of of, uh, corporate investment and the economy in the United States. So moving to a um, so-called global system of taxation uh, the way other countries do, I think would be uh, something that would help, not overnight, not in the first quarter, but um, over the next several years. Are you, as we go into the rest of 2016, optimistic or pessimistic, given all the uncertainty out there? Well, I'm, uh, as I look at the election situation, I'm pretty pessimistic. I, I don't know what would happen if Trump becomes president, uh, and I don't like what the two leading Democrats are saying, so it's hard to be optimistic uh, in that environment. As far as the uh, and again, that's, that doesn't begin to happen <clears throat> until 2017 and beyond, but it puts a cloud over things mm-hmm. in the meantime. Uh, we have too many things we did not speak of, including your important writings, Professor, on the future of Europe, and that is something that we hope to get to with you next time. Martin Feldstein is Ec-10 Emeritus Professor at Harvard University and, of course, 
served with the Reagan administration, among other uh, public duties. The 10-year yield, 1.70%, in by two basis points, curve flattening this morning, well under 100 beeps. The difference in yield between the 10-year and the 2-year, 97 basis points, 0.97 of a percentage point. Uh, That's something that bears watching. Sterling, we're on the Sterling watch, 139.11. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Coming up, the with all due respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event. Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It's 830 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. Economic indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer RIA that is ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. The numbers that we're going to care about today won't be coming out for about an hour and a half. New home sales, 10 o'clock this morning. The forecast is for a 520,000 annual rate. That would be a 4.4% decline. But as we have seen, home sales seem to surprise to the upside or downside each month. We have also heard from Jeffrey Lacker this morning uh, suggesting there is still a reason for the Fed to raise rates and that uh, inflation is not dead. Could you see Diane Swank as president of a Fed, like a regional Fed? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that would be yeah. something. We're going to have to. Well, we can, you know, she could run in the primaries yeah. for that. Um, yeah. She is the, the she is now the head. I did, Diane, are you are you the president? Are you the uh, I'm, I'm, chief I'm cook? I'm myself founder. You know, I can be whatever I want, but I have <laughs> you, a team, and yes, I'm. DS Economics. We've got our own. We've got our own shop. Congratulations! Got my own home. Congratulations <laughs> on that. Thank yes. you. It's terrific. All right. Um, what do we know here? The Fed in December said uh. we might be interested in raising rates <laughs> as much as four times this year because. We're going to see GDP for 2016 running at 2.4 percent. The unemployment rate is going to fall to 4.7 percent, and inflation is going to pick up. What's happened since the Fed met? GDP, according to the Atlanta Fed, is now running at 2.6 percent for the first quarter. Unemployment has fallen to 4.9 percent, and inflation, we haven't got uh, the PCE number the Fed uses till uh, Friday, but the CPI has gone higher. So... What's wrong with the Fed's initial <laughs> forecast? Why is everybody on Wall Street suggesting that they're idiots? You know, I mean, there's a couple things here. I think Fed communications have really, really suffered. Now, Wall Street's been through really a turbulent period. Let's just, that's an understatement since the beginning of the year. And as they went through that period, I think of the Fed and Wall Street as sort of in this kind of relationship, almost like being married. And they don't want to be married sometimes. Um, as some people don't. They're in desperate need of a marriage counselor. And in the communication between each other, the first thing in solving that communication gap, if you're in a relationship, and 
I'm and I'm married. I I know what this is like. Um, is you have to acknowledge the other person's complaints, right? You know, you got to sort of say, "Hey, I, I hear you." And at the beginning of the year, wait, wait know, a minute, were you theater. at my house last night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm thinking back. I, I have an 18 year old son, and at one point in time, he yelled at me, and he said, "I'm yelling because I don't feel heard." Now I realized as an 18 year old that was pretty insightful on his part, and it stopped me in my tracks. And he was right. I also realized I probably paid for too much therapy for him. Um, but I think it's really important that, you know, Wall Street wasn't being heard. The Fed was turning a deaf ear to their cries at the beginning of the year. They're saying, listen, the U.S. economy looks okay, but we're really scared. There's things going on abroad that are affecting right. our profits, that are affecting us, and could come back home. I mean, what happens abroad doesn't stay abroad. And the Fed really has done a poor job of sort of acknowledging that reality that Wall Street's going through without saying is we're caving to it. Is that the reality? Is Wall Street really afraid of what's going on abroad? Or are they basically saying, over the last seven years, we overpriced assets because the Fed stuffed cash into our pockets, and now we know we have to adjust, and it's going to be painful for us, and we don't want to do that? Well, some of that, too. Let's face it. Relationships have their childish side, too. Um, but... In all fairness, um, this is a period the Fed started raising rates, and, and central banks don't have a good history of not having to go back to zero again. And some of the Fed think that's no problem. I think it's a credibility issue. Once you go off of zero, you don't want to have to turn around and go back to zero quickly. I think the Fed has lost some of their credibility. I think the shellacking that Janet Yellen took, I think her speech actually did make a major step in trying to acknowledge what's going on and the concerns and uncertainty out there that Wall Street is facing right. and the broader U.S. economy is facing. But the shellacking she took right. by senators in the House, that was not, did not look okay. good. We know we're not in a recession. We hear that interview to interview, and I don't agree with the touchy-feely interpretation of what policy is versus markets. I think the markets are just pricing in lower nominal GDP. Lacey Hunt and Van Hoisington have a really smart article on growth recession, which Jimmy Wales and Wikipedia pick up uh, beautifully. Diane Swank, you're mint at this. What's a growth recession? We're not in a recession. We just had Martin Feldstein on. But what's a growth recession? And is that what we're in, even as the unemployment rate comes down? Uh, actually, I don't think we're in a growth recession because we're looking for we're looking for the economy to grow at about two percent, which is above the economy's potential this year, which will continue to bring down the unemployment rate and push wages up. So that's not a growth recession. On the flip side of it, are we in a profit recession? Yes. And remember, not all profit recessions precede actual recessions, but some of them do. And so that, I think, is a realistic issue of the gap between how Wall Street sees things and how the Fed sees things. And in all fairness, there are some on the Fed that are worried that the profit recession is deep enough to yeah. scare CEOs to cut, cut costs, not right. just abroad where they're losing money, but at home. Mike, jump in here, but this is Megan Desai's core theory, which is capitalism is always and singularly about profit. Well, yes. Yeah, well, it's about it's about individual. It's not always about profit because if it was, we wouldn't have had a crisis. You know, at the end of the day, yes, maybe a pure theory of capitalism, but our economy doesn't operate on pure theory. It gets fair, it gets fair, gets fair. sort of mucked up by something called human behavior. <laughs> and greed is certainly part of that, but greed can be blinded. Short-term greed right. can blind you from long-term profit, well, you know. and I think that's really important okay. as well. Mike, what are we going to talk to Diane Swank about next? 
She's got to pick out what the maroon carpet for her new offices. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a decoration. Well, I mean, the more shopping she does, the better it is for the economy. We so. are lost in translation with Diane Swank of uh, Swank Economics, and we will come back uh, with her on the important issues of the American economy. Futures negative 17, Dow futures negative 153. Uh, the ten-year yield 1.69 uh, percent. Oil down a dollar three cents. The barrel 30.84 a barrel. This hour of surveillance brought to you by Westchester Subaru. Visit westchestersubaru.com. Here's John Tucker with the latest news headlines. And Michael and Tom in a blog post this morning. President Obama writes he will fulfill his Supreme Court duty in the weeks ahead. Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee say they won't hold hearings on any Supreme Court nominee put forth by the Obama White House. Gulf Coast residents will be cleaning up today from a system of deadly storms that killed three people in Louisiana and Mississippi. At the same time, residents in parts of Georgia, Alabama, and the Carolinas are hunkering down as the storm makes its way there. Donald Trump telling supporters the Republican presidential nominee could be wrapped up in two months. As of the March 1st bevy of Super Tuesday primaries approaches, Senators Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio still looking for ways to slow down the Trump juggernaut. And the number of cats kept as pets is on the way to overtaking that of dogs in Japan, while the number of children continues to drop steadily. In the fast-aging nation, with people increasingly living alone, cats are finding favor because dogs are more demanding. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker, Michael, and Tom. Thank you, John. Time now for the Ricketino Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stashower, John. All right, Mike, about six and a half weeks left in the NHL regular season. Right now, the Rangers, Islanders, both in position to make the playoffs, and the Devils obviously want to join them. Three-game losing streak, though, dropped them to ninth in the East. Last night in Newark, they fell behind. Rangers scoring goals 45 seconds apart in the opening period. But they held the Rangers scoreless over the last 51 minutes. They held them only 19 shots. New Jersey won 5-2, to two, so they're now one point behind eighth-place Pittsburgh. The Islanders won 4-1 to one in Minnesota. Franz Nielsen scored twice. The Nets won't be back in Brooklyn until mid-March. A nine-game road trip, longest in franchise history, began last night, losing in Portland 112-104 to 104 as both Trailblazer guards, C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard scored 34 points. Brooke Lopez tried to keep the Nets in it. He had 36. Washington beat New Orleans by 20. The Pelicans, Anthony Davis, coming off a 59-point game, scored only nine. College hoops, Rutgers still winless in the Big Ten. Lost 83-61 at Minnesota. St. Peter's routed Manhattan. Army won at Boston University. Marist beat Ryder. First day of workouts for the entire Yankee team today in Tampa. Alex Rodriguez's arrival, much less fanfare than a year ago when he was coming back from that Year-long suspension. The new closer, Aldous Chapman in Tampa yesterday, said the domestic violence allegations against him are false. Chapman insisted he never hurt anybody. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashen. John, thanks so much. John Tucker uh, with us here in New York. For all of you worldwide, there's something about the West Side Highway. Phil, out on the West Side Highway, John Tucker, stuck in traffic. He calls it a pleasurable ride, listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. Uh, tell me how the West Side Highway gets flooded when it's an elevated roadway. Just like elevated. drill a hole in the thing. This is along the Hudson River. Uh, well, and parts flooding. of it are elevated, you know. Parts north of 57th Street. Well, this is global warming there, uh, and rising yes. water, right? 
No, it's the rain. <laughs> Will you take it easy. Right. Well, hello to Phil. <laughs> Keep John, listening. Chuck, Phil, thank, thank you. you for listening, and uh, we hope that uh, you're getting enough data checks, particularly in your equity market today. Futures, well, speaking of equities, they deteriorate negative 18. Dow futures negative 160. Coming up on the American economy, Diane Swank. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. The sports report was brought to you by Ray Catina Auto Group. Everyone deserves to drive a Mercedes-Benz from Ray Catina. Make it happen at Ray Catina Motor Car in Edison. Ray Catina of Union and the new Ray Catina of Freehold. Or go to RayCatinaCatina.com. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by American Arbitration Association. International trade or business dispute resolve faster with the International Center for Dispute Resolution, the leader in alternative dispute resolution around the world, ICDR.org. Target posting holiday sales growth that topped analyst estimates, boosted by a surge in online orders, though the retailer's heavy reliance on discounts took a toll on profit during the season. Shares are up seven-tenths percent in early trading. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew says the U.S. wants a more serious commitment from other G20 countries to use monetary policy, fiscal measures, and structural reforms to stoke demand. Lou made the comments in an interview this morning on Bloomberg Radio and Television. Countries that have big economies, regions that have big economies, they need to use policy tools. So, you know, when China looks at what can it do, it has to look at how does it stimulate consumer demand. When Europe looks at its tools, it looks beyond monetary policy, but it asks what can it do with fiscal policy as well. And Lou said when Group of 20 finance chiefs meet this week in China, the U.S. will be pushing for a firmer commitment by nations not to try to boost their economies by depreciating their currencies. S&P E-mini futures are down 17 points this morning. Dow E-mini futures down 153. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 50. The DAX in Germany is down 2.4 percent. Ten-year Treasury up 10.30 seconds. The yield 1.68 percent. NYMEX crude oil down 3 percent or 97 cents to $30.88 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1.9 percent. Or $22.60 to $12.45.20 an ounce. The euro, $1.0995. The British pound, $1.3929. The yen, $111.74. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen Moscow, thank you so much. It is, folks, 8.49 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Megan McArdle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Bernie Sanders is something new, a Democratic candidate who's not pretending to represent the party of fiscal responsibility and balanced budgets. That's always been more hype than reality. Obama's consistently run bigger deficits than Bush, even after the financial crisis ended. But Sanders has dropped even the act. His policy proposals are full of the sorts of frankly unbelievable numbers that would make a con man blush, from doubling the growth rate to cutting health care costs while making coverage more generous. Four former members of the Council of Economic Advisors under Democratic administrations recently penned a scathing open letter about the Sanders fairytale promises. They lamented that this would undermine their efforts to make the Democrats the party of evidence-based policy. Unfortunately, the only people who seem to have read it are other wonks. The idea of Democrats as the party of technocrats came in with Clinton, and it looks likely to go out with his wife. Technocratic projection is fine for modest proposals, but it fails in the face of revolutionary promises. The younger generation of Democrats 
Democrats, the future of the party isn't looking to be told that they can do 4.276% better under a Democrat than under a Republican. They're looking for the kind of transformational change that Sanders promises, and they're bound to be impatient with wonks who demand that they provide a detailed analysis of a future that doesn't yet exist outside of their dreams. I'm Megan McArdle. For more View, please go to BloombergView.com or View Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Some stability to the market off of rockiness two hours ago. Futures negative 17. Michael? Diane Swank is with us. She is yes. the uh, the founder, chief cook and bottle washer uh, of uh, DS Economics out in yes. uh, Illinois. In Chicago. In, in Chicago. In, in Chicago uh, where Have you had a winter? Uh, almost. Not as bad as, as it's supposed to snow today, so we'll have it I back mean, today. If, if, there's if no it's a win- day, it comes back, and then it leaves again. If right. there's no winter in Chicago, then there's no winter anywhere. And that <laughs> that is... You had some... You had- Storm Jonah hit the East Coast. You guys had some Well, snow. first of all, on this program, we do not buy into the Weather Channel's self-promotion efforts. We just call it the storm. We don't give it a name. Oh, okay. But it, it, it lasted 24 hours. <laughs> the snow was yeah, I know. so Yeah, you know, I know. And it's 50 degrees and raining here today. But my yeah. point is, is the last two years we have had uh, to Hold downgrade forecast. GDP forecasts because the first quarter weather was so terrible. And now it's not. And it was. Actually, yeah, we uh, did. And so, you know, um, we're looking at uh, a first quarter that is going to be not just stronger, but it looks like much stronger than people had anticipated. Um, we're looking, well, we're looking a little north of 2%. Some people are a little stronger than that. We think the consumer is certainly out there pulling its might, even with discounts. They are savvy consumers. I think, you know, one thing I want to go back to is that the U.S. economy, we have a consumer that is in better shape than it was. And that's helping the economy's immune system not to be affected by the ills that are um, infecting Wall Street. So Main Street is a little stronger with a better immune system now, and I think that's very important. But going back to the Fed a minute, something that, that Tom said, and that's that, you know, I don't believe in this all this soft stuff and all this touchy-feely stuff. Let's, let's face it. Central banks are only as good as their perception in the market and their credibility. Um, what they can really do, most of their impact is on the announcement effect, um, not on what they actually can do in the market all the time. And I think especially when you're so close to zero and you've got so little wiggle room, credibility really matters. And I'm really concerned that the Fed's communications mm-hmm. need a reset button. I really think the Fed has given up on things like forward guidance, which I think are important. And you might be surprised at this. Is Even though I think the Fed will only raise rates twice this year, June and December, um, and I think that's all that's necessary, I think inflation that we saw, the recent heating up of inflation, I actually think we, we have an argument, as long as we avoid recession, that we will see a little hotter than inflation on the core level than many people expect because we've got wages accelerating and no productivity growth, and that's tinder for a little bit of inflation. We could use it. It's okay. But I think those things are all important to keep in context. But the Fed's communications really do matter, and they're not getting it. What I'm do they, sorry. What, what, do, they, what, they, do, what do they say? How, how they, do they, they change it? They keep changing it. Yeah, that's the problem. They keep testing the waters. And, you know, um, you know, forward, okay, it's an experimental process. But what, in theory, the Fed is trying to do now is they want to say, in theory, nothing's predetermined. We want to reinsert uncertainty into the market. We want to say that we don't know our predetermined path. At the same time, they're saying that at the beginning of the year, they're saying, but we're also saying, looks like every other meeting. How is that not that we're going to raise rates? How is that not poorer guidance? It is. 
So they need to come to terms with what are they going to say. Now, in their minutes, it looks like they're starting to talk about, and I'm not sure this helps because I think more information is actually TMI, um, and we're sort of, we've seen too much right. of the, the kitchen, <clears throat> the back and oh. stuff before the food comes out all pretty and nice. <clears throat> But they're talking about talking about okay. ranges of um, how they're going to think about the federal right. funds rate. Some may go negative. I don't think that's going to help. Uh, I Diane, think they need to simplify. And Diane Swank, Stan's a smart guy, derivatives. He likes us to keep his name private, but he writes sharp notes. He links Fed action, the Diane Swank world, simply to where oil's going. Is there any framework of adjustment or expectations if oil finds a new level modestly below where it's been on West Texas, $30.87, if oil gets to a 29.50 stasis, have we adjusted for that? You know, it's, well, I think we've over-adjusted, but um, that's uh, an issue. It's interesting. Oil prices falling in a global economy that is a net consumer of oil used to be a positive thing. Ben Bernanke actually had a very good blog on um, looking at oil prices and this weird correlation we have that falling oil prices are now bad. And why is that? Because people are using oil prices as a proxy for global economic growth. And we know this is at the same time that we know some of the reason oil prices are so low is because we have – a lot, a lot of production in the world, more production than we ever had, including in the United States. In fact, even though we've cut investment dramatically, shale production has actually fallen very little. So we're still producing a lot of oil. So there's a supply glut that's exacerbating these perception issues. And I think it's the wrong way. I think people are not are, are, are entangling too many things. I think there's a lot going on with oil. I think one of the reasons you've not seen more consumer spending from the fall in oil prices, we have actually seen some food services and accommodation, the most discretionary thing you can spend out there, 2015, the strongest year since 2000. You can't tell me that wasn't oil-related. On the flip side of it, we don't have the accelerant we once did for good reason. Credit is not the accelerant to falling oil prices, nor the mitigator to rising oil prices that it once did. Access to consumer credit is much lower than it was in the past for good reason. Credit card usage in this country is down at 1994 as a share of GDP levels. That is unwinding all of the expansion in credit card of the 1990s. So we don't have some of the relationships with oil that we once did, and I think people simplify the oil story far too much. But, of course, that's how markets think. They're thinking in black and white, and here we're trying to paint a color story. So uh, bottom line, we've been asking this question. Uh, Jack Lou says there's no crisis. Is there, is there a crisis? There's no crisis yet, and we don't want it to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And part of doing that is – the Fed communicating better, and also looking to Main Street because we're now shifting a baton. Wall Street has carried this economy for some time. It's time to broaden it out and shift a baton and hand it to Main Street, and I think they can carry it now. They're um, not super fast runners on Main Street yet, and we're still recovering, but our immune system is better, and we're up there and we're moving again. And I think that's critically important, understanding the economy in 2016. Dan Swank, DFC Economics. Thank you for joining Very us. Good. That's uh, great. I hope really uh, I hope they don't get too much snow there. I've been, you know, it, yeah. it's a little reassuring if they are actually going to have a little I, winter. I, in I think it's her whole Michigan background, or maybe it's that White Sox Cubs wackiness out of Chicago. But she has a beautiful way of finding the middle ground between the polarities of conversation, which I greatly respect. I think it's harder. It's easy to take an angle or a belief one way. It's harder to find the nuances in between. 
yeah. does that very, very well. Sterling uh, does it well off of a horrific European and London morning. 138.80, I believe, is where we got to. Stronger Sterling in the last hour, 139.38. U.S. futures, stasis here, negative 16. Dow futures, negative 144. No stasis here. We're dynamic. Another hour of Bloomberg surveillance.